are listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for June 2010. Today's episode is titled, The Key to World-Class Value Propositions. In the postmodern world of today, there is much conversation about individual rights and entitlements. A common mantra is, what's in it for me? This narcissistic attitude seems to be ubiquitous. Living by faith in the workplace is about discerning and doing the will of God, both individually and organizationally. The best workers and organizers are those who are not focused on their rights, but on their responsibilities to serve the Creator. Only when workers and organizations function as unworthy servants will they deliver world-class value propositions. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Increase Our Faith. Let's have a word of prayer. What I'd like to do is have you hold your hand over your heart as a symbol of the need for our hearts to be open. And I just want you to pray silently and ask the Lord to open your heart to hear what he wants to say to you today. You know, it's not so important what a speaker says. What's important is what the Holy Spirit says. Speaker is just a facilitator, a tool, a vessel to communicate. It's the Holy Spirit that you want to really listen to. Then I'm going to pray for you. Lord, I ask that you today would touch our hearts Open our hearts to receive what you want to say. Father, whatever issues are going on in our lives, would you remove those right now from our thoughts and just enable us right now just to be open, receptive, to hear from you, to be willing to be convicted, to be willing to face things that we have been trying to avoid, to hunger and thirst to know you better, to discern more profoundly than ever, your will. Grant us that grace, Lord. Speak to us today through our time together in Jesus' name. And Lord, I want to pray for myself that you would give me strength to deliver your message, clarity of thought, accuracy of words, and a compelling communication here of your truth. So Father, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the title of my presentation is The Financial Crisis, Greed, and Secular Worldview. And I hope I don't sound as badly to you as I sound to me. So bear with me with my voice. First, a little humor. One of the things that my wife tells me frequently is lighten up. I don't have a clue what she's talking about when she says that to me. I just, so I'm just trying to be obedient and lighten up. So I don't know if you can see that cartoon. Can you see it? Calvin and Hobbes, okay? There's a little lemonade stand here, and this is Calvin, I guess, behind the stand. And he's got lemonade for $15 a glass. And so, I don't know who this character is. Anybody know who this lady is? Who? Susie? Her name is Susie, is that right? Susie, okay. Susie comes up and says, 15 bucks a glass. That's right, have some? How do you justify charging $15? Supply and demand, says Calvin. Where's the demand? I don't see any demand. There's lots of demand, says Calvin. Yeah? Sure. I'm the sole stockholder in this enterprise. I demand monstrous profit on my investment. And as president and CEO of the company, I demand an exorbitant annual salary. And as my only employee, I demand a high hourly wage and all sorts of company benefits. And then there's overhead and actual production costs. But it looks like you just... Throw a lemon in some sludge water. 
Well, I have to keep expenses down. Somewhere I have to be competitive. All right, while we're waiting for that to come up, we're going to do an exercise. Now, in your notes, page 45, there's an exercise I want you to do right now. I want you to use a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is low and 10 is high. And I want you to rate how true these statements are of you. Okay, now notice I'm not doing black and white. A lot of times I just do black and white. My wife reminds me not everything's black and white. I said, why not? It's either true or false. What's the deal here? She says, not everything is just true or false. So I'm trying to learn from her. All right, scale of 1 to 10. Money drives me to excel. Rate yourself. Scale of 1 to 10. Where 1 is very low, 10 is very high. All right, number 2. The best way back to economic prosperity is through consumption. Rate yourself on that. Is that you believe that or not? Number three, sometimes you have to compromise principles to make money. Number four, I'm more than thrifty. I'm always looking for deals. Number five, when I change jobs, money is the major consideration. Now, you guys need to be writing down your answer. Some of you are just sitting there. You need to take the, this is a little pre-seminar exercise. So you need to participate. Number six, I don't pay for anything that I can get for free. Number seven, when investing, historical results are very important. Number eight, more money will solve most, if not all, problems. And number nine, the Bible teaches us about spiritual matters, not financial matters. And number ten, I can't wait until I retire. So some of you jumped there. <laughs> All right, well, I want you to hold on to that. Add up your score and hold on to that. We'll come back to that later. How are we doing? Okay, go back to some humor. All right, so we were over here on the thing on this one. So the next one is, what if I got sick from that? He's talking about the sludge water. Caveat emptor, buyer beware, is the motto we stand by. I'd have to charge more if we followed health environmental regulations. So Susie says, you're out of your mind. I'm going home to get something else to drink. Sure, put me out of a job. It's you anti-business types who ruin the economy. <laughs> so now Calvin's pretty unhappy here, pretty sad. So he decides to go home and see mom. Mom, I need to be subsidized. <laughs> uh, does anybody resemble that? <laughs> Okay, we've done the exercise. Let's talk about the signs of the financial crisis. Now, what I've done is just put together some signs of the time, some indicators of things that are going on. And we're not going to talk about all these, but I just I put them in your notes so you can consider them. And I thought I would just pick out three that I would focus on. I want to talk about the massive public debt, the inflation risk, and hedonism. Those three right there. So that's all I'm going to talk about. But all of these others have financial implications. On our culture. Do you know when you don't line up with God's ways, it costs money? It's inefficient to try to do business outside of God's ways. It's inefficient to try to discover truth outside the word of God. I get a big kick out of Jim Collins' Good to Great book, which, by the way, if you study it, you'll see it's biblical principles. You can tie every one of those principles to scripture. And some of them are not fully developed. Like, you know, he comes up with his hedgehog principle. That's almost C4. He got three of them. See? And you realize he spent 10 man years and roughly a million dollars discovering what he could have found in the Word of God. 
Well, think about that. Now, that's not very efficient. Suppose he had decided to study the Word of God to discover biblical principles of business. He could have probably done it a lot faster and a lot cheaper. And that's the point. We, because of embracing sin, we wind up being inefficient. One of the principles of the Business Leadership School is sin is sand in the gears. It's a principle you'll learn in the school. Meaning that when you have sin in your organization, it produces inherently inefficiencies. Well, these are inefficiencies in our culture, in our economy, in our public policy. They're also in our churches, in our homes, in our businesses. Inefficiencies. Let's just take a look at a few of them here. First, the massive public debt. And I went back to the beginning of the United States. So some of you that are Canadians or other, maybe from other countries, may not be familiar with this. But if you go back to the beginning, here's what our public debt looks like. Okay? From my research, what I've discovered is there was only, there was never a time when the United States was not in debt. The closest we came to being out of debt was about 1835, and the debt was about $35,000. That's the closest. But we've never been totally out of debt. Now, I want you to notice where it's really beginning to take off here. That's about the time that we went off the gold standard and adopted Keynesian economics. Look what's happened. Now, those of you that study economics at all, do you know the Fed targets an inflation rate of somewhere between 25 and 3%, don't they? 2 to 3%. That's their target. Okay. Now, that's important to know because I want to look at inflation next. And I want you to compare the inflation's curve to this curve. Okay, Just keep that curve in mind. Now, let's look at the inflation curve over roughly the same period. Looks pretty similar, doesn't it? So that's interesting. In fact, what's really interesting, if you look in the 1800s here, during the Industrial Revolution, you actually had some deflation going on. Things actually got more cost-effective, more efficient. As we began to adopt technology, technology produced efficiencies. And that's nice. But see, then we come along here, and what happened right there? Keynesian economics. You see how it's kicking up? It's the same kind of curve. And the end result is that today, it takes $10 to buy what cost $1 in 1800. In 1930, a dollar was worth the same as it was in 1800. You went 130 years with effectively, you know, virtually no inflation. A little deflation, but essentially a dollar was a dollar in 1930 like it was in 1800. And now we're just going up. Where's this thing going to end? At this point, it doesn't, I don't know where it's going to end. We're going to wind up like Germany where you've got to take a wheelbarrow full of money to the store to get a loaf of bread. Is that where we're going? Does anybody see a sign here? Y'all looking at me like, I'm not sure what this is all about. How about hedonism? Hedonism is the worship of pleasure. You know, when I was growing up back in the 60s, a professional athlete made a good living. But you know what they did in the off season? They worked. They worked. They did other jobs because athletics, you know, was a, a season of their life where they got to do something they really enjoyed and it entertained others and they got paid a, a decent wage. Today, athletes get rich. They get rich off the signing bonuses sometimes. Now, what is this? And don't we pride ourselves in our country saying that we love education, we value education? Don't we say that? Everybody we talk to, oh, education is very important. Anybody seen a teacher get a signing bonus? Hmm? If a professional athlete is worth $25 million a year, like Big Ben, 
All he does is throw a football, entertain you on Sunday afternoons. So what is a teacher that's shaping the minds of the future worth? Maybe a billion a year? Five billion a year? Something like that? Isn't that fair? Yeah. Think about this. We've adopted a very hedonistic environment. Now just look at some of the dollars that we're paying annually to some of the people that entertain us. In some cases, the politicians. Let's take our president. In the year that he ran for president... He made $2 million. That was probably from his book. And that same year, Tina Fey played the role of making fun of Sarah Palin. Well, she made $7 million. Angelina Jolie, I don't know what she did, but she made $27 million. And Ellen made $35 million. And Eddie Murphy, he made 40. I don't know what he did either. Rush, he made $54 million harassing the liberals. Howard Stern made $70 million being a liberal. And Madonna, I don't know what she did, but she made $110 million. And then Oprah, she made $275 million. What is this? I mean, obviously we are paying for this. Okay, This is not somebody else. It's us. The people of the United States are paying these exorbitant salaries. Why? Why are we doing that? Well, may I suggest this is hedonism. And notice what Ephesians 2 says. All of us lived among them at one time, referring to people like these people here, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. You see, we're just like these people here. We may not make as much money as they do, but what's in them is in us. And we pay their salaries. Now, would you say that this might be a little greedy? Would you agree? You remember the movie Wall Street 20 years ago? This is the fictitious character, Gordon Gecko, And this is his little speech. He says, greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love. Knowledge has marked the upward surge of mankind. John Stossel did a special in 1999. It was called Greed. And in this particular expose... What he articulated was that greed was good. That was his thesis. He quoted Walter Williams. He said, in a free market, you get more from yourself by serving your fellow man, said economist Walter Williams. You don't have to care about him. Just serve him. Greed gets people to cooperate. Even if you want to benefit from other greedy people, you have to make sure they benefit from you. So this is a very common thesis today. Greed is good. So let's look at the definition, just a secular definition of greed. In the popular understanding of greed, the assumption is that greed drives us to excel in hard work. It presupposes that accumulating wealth is good, and the best way to help people is to create jobs. So the dictionary definition, at least one dictionary definition is, a selfish and excessive desire for more of something than is needed. Another definition is excessive, rapacious desire, especially for wealth or possessions. Now, rapacious means taking by force or plundering. It means abusing to accumulate your wealth. Know anybody that abused to accumulate wealth? Like Bernie Madoff? How about all the Ponzi schemes that we've seen over the last year? Medicare could be. A lot of people abusing that system. Well, contrary to Gordon Gecko and John Stossel, the secular definitions of greed don't sound very good. So here you have all these people articulating greed's good, but the dictionary is saying it's not very good. But nevertheless, greed is good is the mantra today. 
The exceptions that greed is good is a sign of secular thinking, such as naturalism and deism, which dominate the business world. Greed is viewed as mostly good, and the bad aspects just have to be managed. You hear that? That's a very common perspective. Now, let's talk about naturalism and deism in just a second. These are worldview concepts. Naturalism is basically an atheistic worldview. It presupposes that there is no spiritual reality. The only reality that exists is physical reality. So everything has to be explained from a physical cause and effect basis. There's no allowance for anything other than physical cause and effect. If they don't know what to do, you know, they may say things like acts of God, but they don't really mean it. A deist is someone who believes that God exists. He's a theistic and that God made the universe, but that God is disconnected from his universe. So he's left the universe to operate under its rules. So basically, it's effectively the same thing as naturalism. Deist and naturalist effectively are the same, even though technically they're different. If you saw the town hall meeting that Buffett and Gates hosted back in November 2009, you saw deism and naturalism at work. If you haven't watched that, I encourage you to do that. What you see in this particular town hall meeting is you see two of the seemingly most revered capitalists and businessmen of this century or of this time talking to the business school, the students and faculty of Columbia University. And it was almost like an interview with royalty. There was such veneration there for these people. It was interesting to hear the questions. All the questions, they were softball questions, by the way. You know, nothing hard at all. I mean, at one point, somebody asked about greed, and Buffett just kind of dismissed it and said, well, greed, we've always had greed. It's been around here a long time. And that's all he really said. The rest of the time was spent projecting a positive view of the future based on the past. It's the very thing that Peter talks about in 2 Peter 3. In 2 Peter 3, he says in the last days, and keep in mind, when I say last days, the people that wrote the New Testament thought they were in the last days. Okay? So we don't know how long this is going to go on. But in the last days, it says people will assume that things will just continue like they always have. You see, that's a fundamental assumption. They were basing their comments on, and nobody ever articulated that assumption. There was no discussion about spiritual reality. There was no discussion about rejection of biblical values and the wholesale disregard for God that's going on in this country. It's as if, if God exists, he doesn't really care what we do in business. That's just up to us. That's how they approached it. And so they said, essentially, that because of their success in the past, they believe they'll have success in the future. That was their thesis. That was their point of faith. Please notice that. That is a point of faith. Now, Buffett went on to even say this. He said, I'll give anybody in this room $100,000 for 10% of your future earnings. Don't know if he meant that, but that's what he said. And what he was trying to paint was, hey, you've got a great future. You're going to do great. And it's all about money. Money, money, money. That's really the whole focus is you guys made a bunch of money. We want to know how you made it so we can go make a bunch of money. Naturalism and deism lead us to make decisions based solely on what we see in the natural For example, jobless claims are down. Durable goods orders are up. Ford earns first annual profit in four years. Toyota recall spreads to Europe and China. Economy grows at faster pace since 2003. What if consumer demand is dead? 
These are just things in the natural. There's no consideration in the thinking of most people today about what God wants to say. God's perspective and what God may do. You know, when calamity comes, it's a wake-up call. One of the things I love about Dennis, and I love many things, is when he showed up in my house in the fall, in the midst of what was going on with SCS and the financial crisis there, his attitude was, what is God saying? That was his attitude. It wasn't wringing his hands, oh my goodness, our plans have been thwarted, we're in the ditch, we're, we're doomed, it's over. No, it was, what's God saying here? Now, it's interesting, when the Haiti earthquake happened, did you hear anybody ask the question, what's God saying? How about the earthquake in Chile, or was it 8.8 on the Richter scale? Sent a tsunami out across the Pacific? I was looking for someone to say, what is God saying? There are no accidents. Remember Proverbs 16, 33? Flip of the coin. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. There are no surprises. God's into what's going on. He's intimately involved in his creation. But to a naturalist and a deist, they don't see God involved at all. So all decisions, all perspective is gained strictly looking at the natural world. And you and I are bombarded, if you watch the news, with a naturalistic worldview. It's coming at you. Did you realize that? You're aware of that. Some of you are. Some of you are looking at me like, I never thought about that. Well, that's what's happening. Just ask yourself when you watch the news, who here is asking the real relevant questions? And the relevant question is, what is God saying? What's he trying to communicate to us? You know, one of the things I think I've learned about God is that I am so immature and so unable to hear him clearly that he has to hit me upside of the head with a two before to get my attention. So that usually is some kind of calamity. Or sometimes it's my wife saying, what are you thinking? Where did you get that? Those are good reality checks. We all need them. We all need to be challenged. But we've got to have the right perspective or what happens is we don't see what's really going on. Because what's really going on in the world is God is executing his plan. The world doesn't see it. They're blind to it. They're totally missing it. We cannot allow the world to suck us in to their perspective. And then we do what they do. And then when that crisis comes, we're not any more prepared than they are. Naturalism and deism see the outward appearance only. The symptoms, not the underlying reality. Notice Matthew 16. Now, since you guys have heard Dutch, I know you understand Greek, right? (laughs) So I'm going to give you some Greek words here. Once I heard him do all that, I thought, well, I I can do this. This It's not a problem. I was concerned about this. Matthew 16. He, that is Jesus, replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance. And that word is a word that stands for the face. You can see the outward appearance of the sky. But you cannot interpret. And that word is the word we get dynamite from. Dunamis, dynamite. You don't have the power to interpret the signs. The signs are this distinguishing marks. You know, when you go along the road, it's nice to have signs to tell you it's so many miles here, or turn right in two miles or whatever. 
Those are distinguishing signs that we need to guide us. God sends us signs all the time. The question is, can we see them? Can we interpret them? And most of us are like the Pharisees here that Jesus is talking to. We only see in the natural. We don't really see beyond the natural to what God is really doing. One of the great questions must be, is God engaged in his creation? That is truly one of the great questions. There is physical reality and spiritual reality if you believe in God. If you're a theist, God is spirit. And so his reality is here. And then we have this physical reality. Now, where did this physical reality come from? It came from this spirit being we know to be God. So it said, in the beginning, God created the physical reality. So which one is the primary, the fundamental reality? The spirit reality. That's the foundational reality. So let's just get clear that God is engaged Look at Deuteronomy 28. This is just one of many examples. You can cite a lot of text, but this is really a clear one here. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations on earth. Wouldn't that be nice to be set high above? All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. And the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks, your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will bless when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction, but flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to do. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he has given you. You see, God is engaged economically and politically with the nation of Israel. This is written to the nation of Israel. Now, I know many people, if it's any part of Scripture that is prior to Matthew, is discounted. Okay? But I want to remind you that the Scriptures that Jesus lived by were the Old Testament. Okay? He said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And every thing written in the Old Testament will be fulfilled. The Old Testament arguably is one of the greatest sources of revelation about who God is and how he works. In fact, I did a study on prosperity not too long ago, and all but one reference to prosperity happens in the Old Testament. Think about that. Virtually everything we really know biblically about prosperity is in the Old Testament. So if you cut that off, you're not going to know hardly anything biblically about prosperity. What Paul wrote to his spiritual son, Timothy, he said, all scripture, all scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for training, for reproof, to prepare us for good works. And that word work is the word ergon, referring to all kinds of work, for our work assignments, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, what was he talking about? All scripture. When he wrote, what was his scripture? The Old Testament. I don't know that Paul knew he was writing scripture when he was writing those letters. So he had to be referring to the Old Testament. So do not discount the Old Testament. So as you look at the Old Testament and you see how God dealt with Israel, is it a picture of how he might deal with us? There are principles there for us to glean. And so here, very clearly, I think he articulates the reality 
that he is connected, he's engaged with his physical creation. And it's very simple. If you obey me, I will bless you. The opposite is true too. Read the rest of the chapter. You say, if you disobey me, calamity comes upon you economically, politically, and in your homes. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that's what happened. That's how Israel wound up in bondage. Another text, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. I mean, that's one of those statements that you want to say and say, are there any questions? <laughs> I mean, what more can you say? In the beginning, God. It all starts with him. Let me give you some biblical maxims. You know what a maxim is? The Proverbs are maxims, by the way. You need to know what a maxim is. A maxim is something that's generally true. There may be exceptions. For example, in the Proverbs, it says, If a man obeys the Lord, he'll have long life. Did Jesus have long life? Did he obey the Lord? So here's an exception right there. It's an illustration how you can have exceptions. But these are general principles that are almost always true. So here's a maxim. Obedience leads to economic and political blessings. Disobedience leads to economic and political calamity. Now, the reason I characterize these as maxims is the wicked can seem to prosper. How many of you know of a really ungodly person that has a lot of money? Just about everybody knows somebody like that. Okay? So it's, you look at that and you say, why in the world would God bless them? Well, I'm going to encourage you to read Psalm 73. Read that. We don't have time to go into it. But let me suggest, as I read that text, what I see is that wealth without God is not a blessing. It's a curse. Because if you have wealth without God, you think you're hot stuff. You think you did it. You think, I've got everything I need. It's difficult for the rich man to enter the kingdom. The blessing of God is that he doesn't give us resources before he gives us the vision and the skill to manage the resources. That's a blessing. And that's how he generally works. So obedience leads to economic and political blessings. Disobedience leads to economic and political calamity. Let me give you a biblical definition. Just look at some of the words here that are translated greed or greedy. And I'm not going to attempt to pronounce these words. I'm not as good as Dutch at pronouncing Greek. But this one is greedy to desire or have more. Covetous, avarice. This is the most common word used in the New Testament for greed. Another one is the act of plundering or robbery. Another one is to eagerness for base gain. In other words, it becomes a consuming thing for you. That only appears one time in 1 Peter. The concept of greed in the New Testament is similar to the secular definition. It's the excessive focus on the accumulation, consumption, and retention of money to the exclusion of virtually everything else. The question is, is greed good? Is there any sense in which greed is good? The secular world says there is a sense. What saith the Bible? Isn't that what we need to be asking? It doesn't matter to me what the secular world says unless it lines up with the word of God. Then it matters. So I'm asking more fundamentally, what does God say? Well, let's understand what we're asking when we say is something good. When we say good, we generally mean we like it. Isn't that what we mean? If something's good, we say we like it. It meets our approval. Well, I want you to look at Jesus' little conversation here with a man. Maybe you'll have a different perspective. Luke 18 says this. 
rich ruler came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Good is an attribute of God. We have taken it and we have watered down the definition and made it something that fits our lives and what we want. When you say something is good, you're saying it lines up with God. It represents God. It portrays God. It honors God. It glorifies God. That's what you're saying. So when you apply that sense, is greed good? I have a hard time seeing that greed is good. Let me give you four key texts here, four key principles that say greed is not good. Greed is not good. Number one, you cannot worship God in money. No servant can serve two masters. Either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I would submit to you, if we were all really transparent and honest with each other, we would probably have to admit that we all try to worship God in money. We try to do that. I mean, that's, we're in a culture that's eaten up with mammon worship. And the older I get, the more I travel and talk to people and see things. I think what I'm seeing in the Christian community across America is this hyper-focus with money. And it shows up in things like big buildings and lots of programs and big budgets, big staff, all these things that we put in, all these mission programs. You see, that's how we are consumed with money. Every Sunday, the big thing is the offering. Getting that offering in here so we can pay all the bills. You see, my thesis is, that's not worshiping God, that's worshiping money. You cannot worship God in money, and that's not something that I made up. It's something that, that God decided. If we try to do it, you know what's going to happen? We will default to worshiping money. That's the reality. Principle number two. Greed is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. Notice what Colossians says. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed which is idolatry. And I've looked at that in the Greek, and I think it says what it says. You know, it's one of those things where you say, did the translators really get it? We need to look deeper here. I'm not a Greek scholar. I know enough Greek to be dangerous. But from what I can tell, it says what it says. And you look at all the vices out there, this is the one that's specifically said to be idolatry. Now, I think that's because you can't worship God in money. I think that's what that is. And so we've got to get real clear. In every one of us, to the degree that we have worshipped money, we are an idolater. Put that on your back. On a scale of 1 to 10, how big is the idolatry factor in me? Is it a 5, is it a 6, 8? Hopefully it's a 2 and dropping. But it's really hard. What happens when a lot of people get into these conversations and they're saying, come on, you got to get real. You know, you got to pay your bills. Yeah, you got to pay your bills. You think God doesn't know that? It's like, surprise, God, we got to pay our bills. You know, we act like God's disconnected from this. Yes. He said, if you seek first my kingdom and you seek to do it righteously, which is according to my value system and my principles, then I'll take care of your needs. Now, he may define needs differently from you. You may decide I need a Bentley and he doesn't agree you're probably not going to have the money for a Bentley. So we've got to be willing to let God define our standard of living. Now think about this. Did you let God define your standard of living? Or did you decide that? 
That could be a convicting question. A lot of people I find don't even want to go there. Don't even want to entertain that question. Principle number three. Idolatry leads to deception. This is a text in Revelation chapter three. It's a letter written to the Laodicean church, which from my study appears to be a very similar city to cities of today. It was a city that was dominated by finance and business. It was very pluralistic. Lots of different worldviews. That's what pluralism means. And in this city, there is a church that's been established by a man named Epaphras, who was Paul's spiritual son. And here, some years later, after all this has gone on, probably 30 years later, we have John writing this letter on behalf of Jesus to this church that's about 30 years old. And he's given him some warnings. It's a fascinating letter. But this one verse here reveals all. Jesus is saying to these professing Christians, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need, do not need anything. How many of you say that? How many, really, be honest, listen, this is not about you talking to me, it's about you talking to yourself. Do you really think that if you have money, you've got what you need? I'm sitting pretty. I can buy whatever I need. I can take care of my needs. I can take care of my family. If I have money, I've got it. If we were brutally honest, I think it would be embarrassed at how many of us really believe that. Now, that's a naturalistic perspective. Should we look at a biblical perspective? Read on. But you do not realize that. You know something bad's coming, don't you? Here's the reality. You think that because you have physical assets, that you've got a big balance sheet, that you've got a big portfolio, you've got a successful business, you've got all this cash flow and this big house and all these cars. You think you've got everything you need. You're in deception. Here's what the reality is about your life. You're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Any questions? If that doesn't put money in perspective, I mean, it's just sobering when you see how God views this. He's pretty radical about us worshiping him. And we start worshiping money, it's not going to lead us to a good place. Principle number four. You can become an expert in greed. You can become an expert in greed. Now, Second Peter, I think, is one of the most relevant books for our times. Which we had time to talk about in detail. I can't. But in chapter 2, he's talking about false teachers that will be here in the end times who will be driven by money. Now, you may not have heard of any, but there's rumors out there that there are a bunch of them out there driven by money. And he describes them here in verse 14 when he says, With eyes full of adultery. They've got all this sexual immorality going on. And I'm sure you've never heard of anybody like that. No moral failures in Christian, Christianity, right? That's just the heathens that have moral failures. We don't. That doesn't happen with us. Are y'all awake? Okay. Are y'all reading the same papers I'm reading? Huh? Oh, that's not in your notes. I know I added it. Yeah, it's not in your notes. Well, you get, read the screen. You see, I had to do the notes a month early. See, and... I was trying to be dutiful and honor what Catherine said, so I was rushing through, getting these notes out, and so I added to it, so I'm sorry. Okay. I mean, I was reading through this the other night, and I said, I left it off a good one that I wanted here. So anyway, with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. He's talking about these false teachers. 
These teachers of Christianity, they seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed. You see that word expert? Now, that word, that Greek word, y'all are getting so good at Greek, gumnazo. What's that sound like to you? Gumnazo. Like a gymnasium? Sound like a gymnasium? Now, what do you do at a gymnasium? You train. You're working out. You can train yourself to become really good at greed. The more you do it, the better you get. Because that's the rule of God's creation. Is when you practice something, you do improve. So that's a scary thought. You can become an expert in greed. Greed is a value embraced by mammon worship. Now I want to show you a little tool that I use to kind of analyze reality. And some of my clients are here. They can talk to you about it because we actually practice this in my business roundtable every month with my clients here in Dallas. And we practice analyzing symptoms and understanding what the root reality is. Because we know we'll never solve a problem unless we understand the root reality. So as we understand, we look at the current circumstances, would you say we have a situation where it's called a financial crisis? I know a lot of symptoms of that, but we'll just summarize it as a financial crisis. And that's driven by deceptive practices. Would you agree? And the deceptive practices are driven by a desire to make as much money as you can as fast as you can. Would you agree? And that's driven by greed. And greed comes from a presupposition, a philosophy of making money. If you have money, you have everything you need. And that comes from the worship of money. So what I've done is just driven the physical reality back to the spiritual reality. So you start with your view of God, and you build a philosophy based on that, a value system, principles and practices, and then you get results. And there you have the intangible driving the tangible, the spiritual driving the physical, root issues producing symptoms. That's how God's reality works. And if we're going to be skilled at understanding reality and responding to it, we have to be able to do this kind of analysis so we understand what the root issue is. The root issue in our culture is mammon worship. That's why we are where we are. And it's manifesting in the church. It's manifesting in our economy. It's manifesting in our public policy. Twelve and a half trillion dollars in debt and climbing astronomically based on a presupposition that there's no day of reckoning. When I was a freshman in college a long time ago, walked into a geology class one Saturday morning. Some of you may not realize they used to have college on Saturday mornings. TTS, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday classes. And being a freshman, you didn't have a lot of choices. So I had a TTS class in geology, so I'm dragging in at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning as a freshman, sitting in this geology class. This professor walks in. I guess he thought he was an economics professor. He starts talking about the debt that LBJ is running up to fund the Vietnam War. He says, gentlemen and ladies, there is no day of reckoning. That is the fundamental assumption behind the debt today. That we'll never have to pay it off. That's Keynesian thinking. Okay, now I'm going to go back to your exercise. Hopefully you've added up your scores. Did you do that? Everybody do that? Okay. Now, I want you to put your score, just figure out where you are on this meter, somewhere between, well, actually it won't be zero. The lowest you could have would be 10, 10 to 100. So does everybody figure out where they are on that meter? 
You see that? Okay. If you're high on that meter, you worship money. If you're low on that meter, then you worship money less. <laughs> I call this the greedometer. And let me tell you where this comes from. Since I've been an elder now for, well, it seems like forever, one of the debates I've had with my fellow elders is that the only real measure of success in a church is discipleship. And the feedback is, or the pushback I get, is you can't measure it. So I'm on a campaign. I'm developing tools to measure discipleship. This is one of my tools, the greedometer. Okay? I also have a rebellion meter. Some of you know about that. I also have, I have a faithometer. <laughs> I've discovered seven levels of faith as I've studied scripture. Now, I'm not claiming I've got it figured out. I'm just telling you what I've discovered. Okay, that's all. And these are tools to help me measure where I am, which then helps me measure where the people I'm walking with, where they are. If we're really about making disciples, we've got to be able to measure this. So that's what this is about, to get a sense of where we are. So hopefully you're convicted. If you're honest with yourself, you're probably further up on that scale than you really want to be. Okay, if you're really honest, because we all tend to be. So Lord, give us the grace to come down off that meter, to come down to the left side, to worship money less. All right, I want to go through the exercise with you and just give you my answers. Now, these are just my answers. I'm not saying they're right. They're just the way I approach it, how I see it. To the degree that I have a biblical worldview, this is how I approach it. Number one there, money drives me to excel. That is, to me, that's not the driver to excel. The driver to excel is obedience. That's what drives you. Money is a byproduct of obedience to God. It's the tool God gives me to do what he's called me to do. Money is just a resource that enables me to obey God. That's all it is. Number two, the best way to back to economic prosperity is through consumption. The best way to back to prosperity is obedience. Obedience leads to blessing. That's the maxim. Number three, sometimes you have to compromise principles to make money. You do not have to compromise principles to make money. You compromise money for principles. Number four, I am more than thrifty. I'm always looking for deals. I think it's good to be a steward, but you need to keep in mind a principle. The laborer is worthy of his hire. If you don't pay fairly for the goods and services you receive, I submit to you, you're living outside the word of God. When I change jobs, money is the major consideration. Selecting a work assignment is not about money. It's about what has God called me to do? That's the only relevant question. Money at best is a secondary consideration. Six, I don't pay for anything that I can get for free. Gets back to the laborers worthy of his hire. If you have a mentality of trying to get everything you can for free, you are stingy, you are greedy. And let me just say this, and nobody's asked me to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you're getting spiritual food from SES and you're not supporting them, you are greedy. And you're robbing the next generation because the resources that you sow in today lays the foundation for your children and your grandchildren. The money I send to SCS, I'm sending for my grandchildren. That's the way I look at it. I'm investing in them having the opportunity to get a biblical worldview of the kingdom of God. That's what I'm after. That's why I make my investment. Number seven, when investing, historical results are very important. That's a very naturalistic point of view. Now, while I wouldn't ignore that, it's not the big perspective for me. What I'm looking for is what does God bless? What will God bless? 
I'm looking to invest in things that line up with his will and his purpose. Number eight, more money will solve most, most if not all, my problems. Money is not the issue. Money is a tool to do the will of God. Your time, your talent, and your treasure are simply tools that you steward to do the will of God. That's all they are. The Bible teaches us about spiritual matters, not financial matters. Again, that's false. The Bible speaks to everything. It's the foundation for all of life. It is the handbook for life. And finally, I can't wait till I retire. If you think that way, you're probably not doing what you're called to do. When you get into your calling, you won't even think about retirement. It will not even be on your radar screen. Because you're so consumed, you get such life out of doing the will of God. Retirement, what's that? Does that help you? Good. Okay. Let me give you some takeaways here, and then you'll be through listening to my voice. A secular worldview leads to naturalism. The theistic version of naturalism is deism. And if we were brutally honest, most of us are deistic in this room. Lord, grant us the grace to throw off the deism and truly embrace a biblical worldview. Many, if not most, professing Christians function like deists relative to economic matters, as well as everything, really. Only a biblical worldview recognizes that the sin of greed is idolatry. Spiritual reality drives physical reality, which is the biblical worldview. If you don't understand that, you'll be stuck in naturalism and deism. And finally, to properly understand and respond to the financial crisis, you will only do that if you have a biblical worldview. So may the Lord give you grace to get that and to live it faithfully in Jesus' name. Thank you.